The end is the best place to begin. Now, if you want a little explanation for that phrase, take your Bibles and find Jonah chapter 2, would you? And let's see exactly what we mean when we say that the end is the best place to begin. No doubt we are seeing what at least Jonah thought was his end. He had run, he had slept, and he was avoiding God at all costs, wasn't he? Till finally, the sailors threw him overboard and he's flailing in the Mediterranean and falling to the bottom of it, thinking, no doubt, I'm at the end. But 117 says that God provided a great fish. So what he thought was his end was actually his beginning. And Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, actually begin to show us the best beginning Jonah ever had. But prior to this verse and this this prayer, he thought it was his end, didn't he? Now, let me give you a preview of chapter 2, because we're going to be talking for, for the next three weeks about this chapter. As you know, in this current series, we're spending three weeks in every chapter. And so as we get into Jonah chapter 2, we're going to kind of see what I've been calling the way back. How do we come back to God? What is the road back to God like? And, and, and what are the conditions that surround our journey home to God? I think there are th- at least three elements that make up the road back. And we're going to talk about those uh, in the next three weeks. Let me just kind of give you a preview, though, because they are not always sequential. These don't always happen in this order, but they do always happen. These are all present in our journey back to God. I think, first of all, God hears us. At some point, we cry out to God. We come to the end and we cry out. I think God humbles us. Sometimes the humility causes us to cry out. Other times we cry out and the humility follows. But there's always a sense of humility. There's a humbling that takes place. And then there is an honoring that takes place. All three of these elements are seen in Jonah's account. And if you ask about anyone here who's come back from wayward days or straying moments, times of rebellion, they'll tell you. That the fact that God hears and that he humbles and that he honors was part of their journey, too. We're going to take a closer look at those elements in the next three weeks. So why don't we start this week by looking at this place that Jonah came to where he thought it was the end. He cries out to God and he, we begin to see it's really just the beginning. The beginning of his road back. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. You have a pen handy, hopefully. Your study guide there in your worship folder, at least a notebook. Take some good notes. God will teach us here from his word. Verse 1 says this, from inside the fish. And I think you're pretty observant. You've seen that we're displaying that for you a little bit, right? Inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Now, now can I say to you something? Listen very carefully. This phraseology, I'll use that, that word. The way this is phrased in verse 1, he prayed to the Lord his God. It's reminiscent of chapter 1 when the sailors asked Jonah, Hey, pray to the Lord your God, remember? It was this pluralistic environment on top of the ship. They were looking for an answer, and so they're all praying to their gods. And they say, Jonah, you're the last one left. You pray to your God, man. Well, textually, to be most biblically accurate, we don't know that Jonah really prayed. 
Check out the text. All we know is they requested him to pray. The text says, actually, he then said, throw me overboard and, and that'll solve your problems. Like he was saying this. I know if I pray what God's going to say. So let's just cut to the chase. Throw me overboard. This is, if you just take the text as it is, the first time Jonah actually prays. And he prays the Lord is God inside the belly of a fish. Inside this fish. Here's what he says. In my distress. Now let's pause there for a moment. Underline the word distress. And let's think about what that meant. Some of you may think it refers to the whale. And while that may be partly true, can I say to you that, uh, scripturally speaking, the whale actually is a picture of salvation. It's where his altar was. It's his sanctuary. It was actually his lifeline. The distress he's speaking of here is, is more than likely the actual experience of almost drowning. The Mediterranean waves, the, the, the sinking to the bottom of the ocean, the sense that, you know what, I'm at the very end and it's going to be in the and the watery grave of this ocean. That's the distress he was talking about. The drowning experience where he almost died. Now, I'm not saying that being swallowed by a great fish is any pleasant experience. I'm not sure that going down that throat and into that belly and being part of those digestive juices, I'm not sure that's necessarily uh, a favorable time. But the word distress here probably refers to his drowning experience. In fact, it refers to what the rest of the chapter unfolds. Where the waves crashed over and the seaweed was around his head. We'll, we'll uncover that in the next few weeks. But Jonah was at the end. And at the end, according to verse 2 in this psalm, this prayer he writes, he says, It was in my distress that I called to the Lord. The word called there is different than the word pray in verse 1. Let me see if I explain the difference to you. And neither of these are better or worse. They're just different. The word pray is only used twice in Jonah. Here, first time it's in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. And it has a ring of a little more officialness. And that's not necessarily saying that it's bad, but it's more of a, I'll use this phrase, kind of like the Lord's Prayer. When the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, he kind of gave them this prayer. But the word call in verse 2 is more like the uh, informal, unofficial, help me God kind of prayer. It doesn't have any these and thous and introductory comments. It's like, your dinner table prayer, as opposed to what you pray when you're just about to get into an accident, perhaps. You slam on the brakes and you say, help me, God. It's different than, Lord, we thank you for the food. And Are you with me? That's the point of these words. And Jonah's saying, listen, man, when I was about to the end, and Lord knows my heart when I say this, I didn't have time for a lot of these and thous. And I had just to cut to the chase. I needed God's help. He was at the end. And so he called to the Lord, and verse 2 says, The Lord answered him from the depths of the grave. That's in a positive or a, a repeated phrase for the word distress. It's the Old Testament word sheol. It is this word in verse 2 that makes some scholars think that Jonah actually died drowning. And that somewhere after his death, a well came up or a great fish came up swallowed him, and in the belly or the womb of this whale, is actually the best use of the Hebrew language, God raised him back to life. Now, the other view is that he was almost dead, and in his drowning experience, the great fish came up and swallowed him and rescued him. I tend to side with the second view. Now, the first view that Jonah actually died does seem to be a little more fitting with the actual typology that Jonah is of Christ. 
Christ died, was buried for three days, three nights, and rose again. And that's what Jonah is a type of. However, the word Sheol here is also used symbolically of several Old Testament people, one of them being David. Psalm 86.13 says that David says, I was in Sheol. Now, David never went to the Old Testament place where uh, the wicked were punished. But he used that as a symbolic way to say, I was at the very end. I tend to think when Jonah here says, I was in the depths of the grave, he's saying, listen, I was on my last breath before death. It was like I was on my way to the bottom. It's a way to describe the, the worst place you can be. And that's where he called for help. He says in that verse, the Lord answered him. And then in verse 2, the Lord listened to his cry. I love the words answered and listened because it's not like you answer the phone. Are you with me? Because sometimes when you answer the phone, you answer the phone and you really don't want to answer the phone. You may have caller ID and you see a number you're not sure it is. You answer it like, okay, hello. And, you know, you're maybe uh, at least emotionally kind of at like this or you're not sure how, who's going to be there. This, uh, these words, re, uh, li- answer and listen, indicate there's a, a readiness. In other words, you're waiting. It's like waiting for a phone call. And God is waiting for Jonah to call out. It's, it's very uh, similar to the father in Luke 15 who was just waiting for his wayward son to come home. And what does the text in Luke 15 say? That when he saw his son a long way off, what does it say? He ran to meet him. So he wasn't sitting back there behind the door of his nice house saying, Well, son, it's about time you came home. Let's see if you got the magic words. I put extra locks on the door. And I've changed a few things around here. And if you've proved yourself worthy, you can come back home. Mm-mm. These words indicate a God who hears us, is responsive, and is loaded down with grace and mercy. And the minute we turn, the minute we say, man, I need to go back to God, He hears that and He meets us more than halfway. He showers us with grace and mercy. That's the kind of God Jonah called to. And that's the kind of God you were calling to earlier. That's the kind of God that we pray to regularly amen who hears us and responds to us he's not the old man in the sky with a gray beard and a long cane he's not got a list checking it twice he knows you don't match up and you know what he's going to say it to you and remind you over and over oh god as we learned in isaiah is a god of incredible mercy and grace and he is a responsive god that's who jonah called to it's a great story, and in these simple verses we learn something, that, that Jonah found his way to the end, and it was actually God's beginning. In fact, you might want to write that phrase down. Our end is his beginning. You know why that hits you kind of funny? You know why that strikes you odd? Because no one here in their natural human condition goes to the end. We do like Jonah. We fight the waves, don't we? We fight the call of God. We, we fight the sailors who say, pray. We do everything possible to avoid the end. But the truth is, the end is where God wants you. For His best work is often done when you're at your worst. I'm still shocked how many times we run from the end. 
We're just not conditioned as Americans to embrace a place of humility, of debasement. We hang on to any sense or ounce of dignity, don't we? When the truth is God is just waiting to meet us more than halfway the minute we realize just how lost we really are. How much we need Him. What do you do when you're at the end? Well, let's just look at the obvious. What did Jonah do? He prayed. Let's not make this issue complicated. When you're at the end, pray. Call out to God and say, Lord, I need your help. What's cool about a prayer like that is you don't have to come to God with answers or a list or solutions. God's not looking for your help. God's looking for your inadequacies. He's looking for your for your humility. And often we come to God at the end and we say, well, okay, God, I'll bargain with you. We have these ways of praying. Can I say that what God's looking for is just someone who's at the end and admits it. Lord, I'm at the end. I don't know what to do. And I need your help. Save me. So when we get to the end, which is really our beginning, the first thing to do is to pray. Just like Jonah did. Now, sometimes we come to the end of our situations, and they're not always sinful situations. They're just situations that we think we can control, and then we realize we can't. And Sometimes we come to the end of ourselves. Sometimes we come to the end of sin. There's many things we come to the end of. I recall a situation where um, I came to the end of, a, of myself. It wasn't a sin per se, but it was surely a tragic error. It almost cost me a friend. Uh, my friend's name was Rick, and we this, we had been here maybe seven or eight months is all. This is back in 1996, and uh, as a youth pastor, I was really trying to organize and oversee uh, a number of students, and we had developed a number of mission trips, and that had kind of gotten into me as far as being kind of proud about it. We'd taken some really good steps of progress, and so I was kind of hip on the fact that we were sending out four and five mission teams this summer just from our youth group, and one of the guys leading those trips' name was Rick, and he said, Todd, I'm going to take the junior hires to Mexico. Can you uh, get my car after we leave and just take it back to your house and, and let it stay there? Because the church parking lot probably has some issues with safety. It's not exactly the, the best place to leave a car for a week. I don't want to get vandalized. It's a company car. I was like, Rick, no problem, dude. I'll take care of it. He gave me the keys. So we saw him off on Saturday and goodbye and I'm feeling really good about this team leaving. There's other teams leaving. I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. This is how you mobilize people. You you get them busy. And then I realized, oh, i got to take his car back. Well, I'll do it tomorrow. So Sunday comes, and we have little kids at that point. And sometimes when you have a lot of little kids and you're also working at church, it's not the easiest time to get some errands done or to take care of details. So I said to Julie, you know what? I'll get it tomorrow. I'm coming into work. I'll get it tomorrow. It was Monday. I come to work on Monday. I forgot the keys. And instead of saying, hey, can you maybe meet me down here to Julie? I said, I'll get it tomorrow. Tuesday comes. And guess what I said on Tuesday? For some crazy reason, I said, I'll get it tomorrow. I said that every day till Friday. I said, I'll get it tomorrow. Because after all, I mean, I'm a good guy. I've got it handled. I mean, I didn't get four or five mission teams on the road by being lazy. I'll take care of it, Rick. Don't worry. I remember Friday or Thursday in that general end of the week, Julie said, have you gotten that car yet? I'm like, no, but I'll take care of it. I'll get it tomorrow. Like, hey, just relax, baby. I got it taken care of, you know. 
So I decided to get it Saturday. I thought I probably need to get it today. And I drove in there to get it. I think they got back either Sunday or Monday, but I drove in there to get it. And I'll never forget the feeling I had when I drove into the parking lot. I drove in there and I saw this car. Every tire was slashed. There were dents all in the hood. All the windows were cracked. Some were broken out. And uh, the phrase, I'll get it tomorrow, just was ringing in my ears. Why didn't I get it yesterday is what I suddenly was saying. So I drove up and I parked right beside it. I just remember sitting in the front of, our, of my car and talking to God like, um, hey, God, I really need help. And I was waiting for like a miraculous GM miracle right there on the spot. You know, Lord, could you regenerate? You, you're a God of regeneration, right? I mean, come on, God, restore this car back to its original health. And nothing happened. God didn't bail me out that way. I remember sitting in that, the front seat of my car and probably for the first time in that situation, just praying this prayer. God, I don't know what to do. I put off what I should have done and I'm in a mess. Now, that's not a sin. And it wasn't in the sense like uh, the end of my life. But that was the end of a situation. And God did rescue me. You know what he did? He gave me the courage to call Rick. Because, you know, sometimes you're tempted to find a way out of something, maybe not tell the whole truth. Not that you ever think that way. But sometimes you're tempted to just try to wiggle your way around. Remember God saying, Todd, I'll be with you. Just call him and tell him what happened and we'll get through this. So I spent about three days in the belly of a well as well. In that sense, sometimes I feel like. I remember calling Rick and just telling him honestly what happened. And his first question was, he said, why did you wait till Friday? I'm like, Rick, I don't know. I just really dropped the ball. I'm sorry. He said, well, we'll figure it out when I get home. I mean, that situation, when I read some of about Jonah and being at the end of yourself, I think about that and thinking, you know what? I didn't have any answers except just to say, God, I need help. And God restored that relationship and he kept that thing close, spared us from a lot of rippling effects. Sometimes we come to the end of our sins where they really are much more tragic. We've offended a spouse or a child. Perhaps we've come to the end of ourselves. We've been running from God for a lifetime, and it's years of rebellion. And God humbles us in ways that are uh, just very uh, tragic. Maybe he, um, he allows terrible things to happen to us. But regardless of what your situation is or what your sin is or even to yourself, guess what? The end is the best place to begin. And if you're avoiding the end, you're actually avoiding beginning. How's that for some, some logic? What do you think Christ meant when he said, whoever loses his life will what? Find it. You can gain the whole world, but if you lose your soul, you really lost in the end. Are you with me? Throughout Scripture, God's logic is not like man's. And I say to you, the best place for you to begin is at your end. And the quicker you get there, the better for you. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Todd, I'm not sure where, what I'm at the end of. I've just been attending First Family for a little while, or I just came today for the first time, or I have not heard much about Jesus Christ and, and the gospel. I'm not sure how to process all this. Well, can I say to you that, that one of the best places for you to begin is at the end of your trying to save yourself? Because we do that, don't we? We try to save ourselves humanly. We try to be good and get wed and join a church and give money. All these things thinking, well, the Lord will notice that. The only thing God notices 
is the prayer of repentance whereby we say, I can't save myself. I believe the truth about Jesus. Only he can save me. And when a heart cries that out, God responds. In fact, let me show you a couple of New Testament examples of, of some people who came to the end and how God responds to that. Look over at Luke 15 just briefly, would you? Luke 15. Here's how awesome it is to get to the end. This is the story of the prodigal, the prodigal son. And I won't read the entire account. Perhaps you can in your small group, maybe as a companion text, a corollary passage that will fit well with your discussion. I just want to draw your attention to Luke chapter 15, verse 17. The son is long gone from the house. He finds himself at the end of his rope. He's eating with pigs, literally in a pig pen, eating uh, things that the pigs are done with. It's the leftovers from the pig's table. And it was in that, in that situation that verse 17 happens. Look what it says, the beginning phrase. When he came to his senses... That's a good translation. I especially like the way the King James puts it, though, which says when he came to the end of himself. Can I say to you that really this son's life didn't begin till after verse 17? He said, you know, I should go home. I should say to my father, you, you've got hired servants. You've got slaves that that live better than, than I'm living. So, Dad, I'm sorry. I've blown it, and I just want to know if, you, if you'll hire me back. Now, we know that didn't happen. Instead, the father met him a long ways off, didn't he? Kissed his neck and welcomed him back, not as a slave, but as a son. Had a big party. Do you see where his beginning was? At the end of himself. You see, God honors those who find the end. But we too often avoid it, don't we? Turn a few pages to the right. Look at Luke chapter 18. Here's a publican, not a prodigal, but a publican. And he is praying, and he prays really differently than the first guy, who is a Pharisee. Pharisee prayed about all of his self-righteous acts and why he is deserving and worthy. But the publican or the tax collector, which in that culture in that day and age were looked down upon as the low life. They were the cheaters and the scum of society. Look how he prays. Verses 13 and 14 says he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. It was a sign of humility, a sign of debasement. And he says, actually verbally, God have mercy on me, a sinner. The Bible says in verse 14 that this is the man that went home justified. And look at the last part of verse 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Can I say to you that on your road back to God, humility is part of the process. You can pursue it yourself or let God do it to you. But humility is part of it. How much better, since we know that God hears us, to humble ourselves and find the end quickly so that we can actually be at the beginning. So today, you've come into first family. Perhaps at the end of your search for truth, how to be saved, what it means to believe, and who is this man named Jesus, and why do I hear that he's the only way? If you'll respond with, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, that he died on a cross, was buried, and rose again. And only through that.
Can I receive forgiveness for sins? If that's the cry of your heart, you've not come to the end today. You have just opened the door to the beginning of the best part of your life. You see, that's what God does best. He hears us. He responds to us and he saves us. And I don't know everyone's spiritual condition, but can I just simply be very transparent with you and ask if there's anyone here who perhaps is, is not sure that they've ever begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've been trying to avoid the end, would today, would you embrace the end? Be caught in his grace and say to Jesus Christ, I do believe that you are the only way. Admit, I've been trying to be good, to live a good life, or I thought getting, getting baptized was the trick, or giving money, or joining a church, or being part of an American family, or whatever. I thought all that was kind of the, the, the point. No, none of that works. The Bible says, by grace are we saved through faith. So would you right now, wherever you're sitting, just in the sanctuary of your seat, and be thankful it's not a whale, amen, or a great fish, Right there in that altar, cry out to God and say, God, I believe and accept the truth about Jesus Christ. He was who he said he was, your only son. He did what he said he did. He died and he rose again. And so I believe. And in that moment, right now, God will do what he does. He will save you. He'll hear you and he'll redeem you. And this room is filled with people over the last four plus years who have done exactly that. They've come to the end. They cried out to God and they discovered all This is just the beginning. Hallelujah, first family. Amen. I trust maybe someone here today has stumbled in here, maybe popped into church. You thought it was the end, but now you're realizing, okay, this is just the beginning. Now You may think that sounds crazy, but that's not an uncommon thing at first family. A few months ago, we had a man, maybe a year ago, I'm not sure exactly, a man driving a large truck just kind of whipped in here one morning. He was driving slowly across uh, down uh, First Street. He saw the signs for our church and our services. He said he felt an overwhelming compulsion to attend. So he kind of pulled in his big truck. And he tried to find a place to park, which we all could say amen to that. It's difficult, but don't quit coming. We're parking folks in different places to keep room in the parking lot. But he pulls his truck in. He parks. He comes in and says to our greeters, I've never been here. not sure why I'm here, but I know God told me to come this morning. I'm at the end of some things. And I need some help. Isn't God awesome? See, God does things like that. He supernaturally orchestrates people's lives to bring them to the end. Not so that they can think, I'm done, but so he can show them, hey, it's just the beginning. We've had couples, more than one couple, nearing the divorce court. One I'm thinking of in particular would drive past this building on their way to work. And on certain days, they'd see our sign or on the weekend. And one of them said to the other, I think we ought to try to go to that church and get some help. I don't know why, but they got the word family in their name. Maybe they can help us. They show up and over a period of time, they open their heart to God. And they realized we're at the end. We need help. And what they discovered was it was just the beginning of the best days of their life. I had a couple see me, an older couple see me after first service. And they said, Todd, we just want to come tell you that we've never been happier in our marriage. And if you knew them... You would say, really, I thought two years ago you were the most unhappy. And they probably were. But God stepped in and has done a miraculous work through their lighthouse and through some counselors. And just through their willingness to say, you know what, we're out of answers for how to relate to each other. 
But God stepped in and showed them that the end of their cells was really where their best beginning was. You see, guys, it's not it's not a crazy thought. You may hear it at first in Jonah, too, but if you search the scriptures, you find it's a repeated scriptural principle. God's best work begins when we find the end. And so today I'm going to ask you to be willing to embrace the end of either a situation, maybe the end of yourself, the end of a sin. Man in first service told me, he said, Todd, I've been harboring a sin for months. Today I'm confessing that. I'm owning up to that. He said, I was hurt my family, my wife. He said, but no more. He said, I've been wrong. I'm going to own up to it. He said, this is the beginning of a new day for me. And he confessed his sin right there in the service. To It was this is the way it ought to be. You see, we run from the end, don't we, church? We try to avoid the, the humility that comes with saying that. But that's exactly what God is after. He's after a, a person that would say, God, help me! Without fanfare, without... Uh, all the religious garb that goes with it, just cry out to God. And guess what? He will hear you. And He's listening. And He'll run to you. That's the kind of God that you're calling out to. Since we know He hears us, can I offer you a simple action point today? Can I make a strong suggestion? Make each... Uh, Each day you you get up, make the end your beginning. Okay? Not real deep, but pretty practical. In other words, embrace a posture of humility from the get-go. Just say, as every day dawns, when the sun comes up, say, Lord, I am not in control today. I don't know what's going to happen. I have no clue how to deal with most things in my life. But you know what, Lord? I'm starting today... With my hands off and your hands on, I'm yours totally as the sun comes up. God, just take over. Get to the end quick. You'll find that's the best place to begin each day. Find that altar, that place of humility. Now, listen very carefully. I'm not saying that you abandon God-given giftedness. Don't hear me wrong. Don't let the enemy put thoughts in your head that I'm not saying. Some people hear this, they say, well, Todd will just act like we don't have any clue what's going on. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't, that you should abandon what God's gifted you and, and, and responsibility. But I'm saying this. There is an attitude in our hearts that should, should be present at the beginning of every day that says, God, I'm desperate without you. I'm, I'm lost without you. You are, are the one that holds the keys. You have the answer. So, God, I will depend on you completely today. That's the attitude. Does it mean that, that you don't think? Don't use your, your, your God-given uh, skills, your spirit-led promptings. But it means your attitude is one of humility, where you bend the knee and you start the day with God. Not just as a co-pilot, amen, but God as the only one in the front seat. That's the attitude we're looking for. Now, to help you unpack that, to show you what that looks like, I want to ask you to do something this week. I want you to begin every day, either as a family or as a couple or as a person, Reading a certain section of Scripture. So turn to James 4 as I close. Let me show you what I would call is the prayer of humility. It's in the book of James. It's chapter 4. Just flip over to the right a few more books. And you'll see three verses that will be an awesome start to your day. This is where you need to get to. This is the response, the recognition 
that, that I'm asking you to pray every day this week. If you'll start your day here, uh, you'll have the beginning you're always looking for. James 4, 7 through 10. It's what I call the prayer of humility. It's how we ought to pray to God and respond to Him uh, as the, each day begins. It's how to find the end quickly. Look what it says. James 4, 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God. That's right. Start each day submitting. You see, that's not how I think. Man, I, the sun comes up, I'm out of the bed. All right, God, let's go. I got my list. I'm ready to roll. Watch out, world. And you're that way too sometimes. Now, I know that's not necessarily simple or bad, but sometimes that can creep into where God becomes an item on our, on our to-do list. And we're going to do our thing and God's just kind of part of it. And it's really our list, our way. And you know what? Submitting to God may not always be first on my agenda every day. I'm saying let's submit to God every day as the sun comes up. Let's say, Lord, before my feet take a step on this floor, it's your way today. Because what if God wants to interrupt your day timer, your iPhone, your little Palm Pilot? Hey, wait, God, that's not what we talked about. That's not what I had in mind. But if we submit as the sun comes up, then we're showing God that we are we want to humble ourselves. He says, submit, resist the devil. He'll flee from you. He'll give you thoughts that, you know what, you're in charge. You're in control. Verse 8, come near to God. He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, there's this sense that, let's just go admit that our hearts, there's nothing good within us. We, we have tendencies to stray and prone. We are, left to ourselves, at best hypocritical. Are you with me? We're not just good people. We are sinful creatures. And only through God's grace and love can we have any redeeming value. Here's what he's saying. Admit that. Just realize, you know, left to myself, God, I'm, I'm straying. But Lord, that's not what I want. I want to humble myself before you. Cleanse me. Purify my heart. Verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and well. In other words, have the right attitude about your sin. Have the right perspective about, about what's going on in your life. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. In other words, he's saying, you know, don't just pass things off as no big deal, but have a serious attitude about situations, about sins. Look at them biblically and embrace them and say, God, you, you've got to purify me and cleanse me. Something needs to change, and I'm at the end. Please step in. Verse 10 seems to sum it up, doesn't it? Humble yourselves before the Lord. What an awesome way to start each day. He'll lift you up. Sometimes I do the opposite. I start my day lifting myself up, and then by 7 or 8 o'clock, I found God has humbled me. How about if we start the day saying, Lord, it's all you and none, none of me. I, I want to start at the end as my day begins. So, Lord... Here's all my cares and my situations. I'm just throwing them all on you. You know best. And I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow your spirit. God, that's the beginning of my day. I'm at the end. You ready to start? Let's go. Are you with me? Man, if we could find that beginning, which is actually the end, if we could make our end the beginning of every day, I think we'd find a, 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 a host of people who are having... Much better, I'll use the word success here in the right way, much better success in favoring dealing with things than when we wait and avoid the end. 
be neat this week if 600 plus people were starting every single day this week reading together either as family or as a friend or individually James 4, 7 through 10. Imagine the, the, the impact that might happen in this city in different buildings and workplaces and factories and, and coffee shops and gas stations and banks when we're headed to work submitting and humbling ourselves and seeing ourselves at the end. And what God might do with that many people who are already at the end, which is where His best work begins. Amen. So this morning I'm just calling you to begin at the end. To start every day for the next week at the place that probably, like me, you're trying to avoid. Just get there in a hurry. Embrace the humility that comes with those kinds of situations. And call out to God for His help. He's listening. He's responsive. And He's waiting to meet you way more than halfway. If only you'll call out to Him. Amen. How about church this family, church uh, this week? Let's call out to God every day as we start our day with these verses. And watch Him make our end His beginning. Let's pray.